Hands of My Podcast is a proud member of Dark Cast Network, presenting the brightest of indie podcasts. Hola, my beautiful humans. This is Jasmine Castillo, and I bring stories and cases from the people of color community, bringing awareness of murdered and missing indigenous women, girls, two spirits, the LGBTQ community, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, Black Indigenous people of color. These are their stories. So, welcome to Hands Off, my podcast. ACM, ACM, CIA, Vashtasquit, Litskust, Elis, Talitskwa, Shketin Nation, Homkom, Kualvo, ACIS, EA, we are your myth, the Sartmok, the Hachatmok to E. Just want to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Garrett Dan. Um, I carry two traditional names, Lash and Amhosha. Both come from the head of Harrison Lake. I'm coming, going live. I'm going to sing a couple songs uh, uh, for Luke. Because I wear his uh, picture on my shirt. I don't have it with me today, but I wear his picture to bring awareness to the missing emerging men in our group, Butterflies and Spirit. You know, I miss you, Ma, Gina, Jade. You know, I love you guys. And uh, just going to translate what I said in, in my language into English, you know, as uh, just to introduce myself. Uh, where I was from, and I want you guys to make sure you guys keep up the good work with a good mind and a good heart, because you know that's that's how we get through things, so with a good mind and a good heart. Here I am up in the Nazco and uh, Chilcotin territory doing this work up in Quinell. Getting ready to head home, but I couldn't go home without doing this because I know, I know what day it is. First song, song I'm going to sing is going to be Little Chief, made by a uh, brother down down south. His name is Tintian, Frank Leon.
send some love, you know, acknowledging spirit first by singing the first song and then sending some love, more love to the family that's hurting from their missing loved one. You know, I love you guys. I'm always going to be here for you. You know, just, just a message away. Missing, murdered, and exploited Indigenous men and boys in Canada is an ever-growing problem in our society. Tragically, the number of missing and murdered Indigenous men and boys in Canada has been increasing, as well as in extreme cases of exploitation. Indigenous men and boys in Canada are facing a crisis. They are six to seven times more likely to be murdered than any other group of individuals in the country. And that number has been steadily increasing since 2014. The situation is so severe that Indigenous men and boys accounted for 32% of all missing persons alerts across the country in just one year, with many still missing or later found deceased. Furthermore, police-involved shooting deaths disproportionately affect Indigenous men representing 38% of the last 100 cases, while only making up 5% of the population. As we take pride in celebrating diversity this month, it is crucial that we also acknowledge the stark realities faced by First Nations men and boys in Canada. We must grieve for their losses while also recognizing and celebrating their precious lives. Let us not forget our 2S relatives who experience violence at even higher rate due to colonial erasure from our communities. The Metro Vancouver Indigenous Services Society and Shane Point, Musqueam First Nation, echo this sentiment. Shedding light on this issue is essential in bringing change and honoring those who have been lost. Efforts have been put in place to curtail the, the rate that Indigenous people are exploited. However, that has yet to bear fruit with more than 1,000 Indigenous people either missing or murdered in the past couple of decades. It is an issue that requires more attention from government, yet it remains largely invisible. All actions need to be taken in order to be better to protect Indigenous rights, help the victims, and improve the public's understanding of this crisis. This means more resources need to be placed in support Indigenous victims of crime access to culturally safe programming, and increase public education and knowledge about this phenomenon. According to RCMP, there were 2,049 missing and murdered Indigenous men and boys in Canada between 1980 and 2019. Of these, 1,181 were homicide victims. Indigenous men are seven times more likely to be murdered than non-Indigenous men, and Indigenous boys are five times more likely to be murdered than non-Indigenous boys. The majority of missing and murdered Indigenous men and boys are from remote and rural areas. They are also more likely to be young, have a history of substance abuse, and have been involved in a criminal justice system. There are a number of factors that contribute to the high rates of violence against Indigenous men and boys, 
including the residential schools. The legacy of residential schools has had a profound impact on indigenous communities and has contributed to the intergenerational trauma that is often seen in families and communities. Poverty. Indigenous people are more likely to live in poverty than non-indigenous people, and poverty is a major risk factor for violence. Racism. Indigenous people face racism in all aspects of their lives, and this can contribute to feeling of isolation and despair, which can increase the risk of violence. Substance abuse. Substance abuse is a major problem in many indigenous communities, and it can lead to violence, but as a victim and as a perpetrator. The criminal justice system. Indigenous people are more likely to be incarcerated than non-indigenous people, and they are more likely to be victims of violence while in custody. There are a number of things that can be done to address the issue of missing and murdered indigenous men and boys, including Investing in Indigenous communities. This includes providing funding for education, housing, and other social programs. Addressing the legacy of residential schools. This includes providing support for survivors and their families, and working to heal the intergenerational trauma that has been caused. Combating racism. This includes working to change attitudes and behavior and to create a more inclusive society. Addressing substance abuse. This includes providing treatment and support services and working to reduce the availability of drugs and alcohol. Reforming the criminal justice system. This includes working to reduce the over-incarceration of indigenous people and to ensure that they are treated fairly within the system. The issue of missing and murdered indigenous men and boys is a complex one, but is one that must be addressed. By working together, we can make a difference in the lives of Indigenous people and their families. In January of 2016, Jennifer Mount Pleasant released her master's research at Wilfrid Laurel University, which focused on violence against Indigenous males in Canada with a focus on missing and murdered Indigenous men. She also put together a database of victims which had over 700 names at the time. The university profile quotes her as stating, This is nothing really out there that advocates for Indigenous men. This leads people to believe that Indigenous men aren't worthy of inquiry. The profile explains how her research has met with a mixture of emotions within the Indigenous community and that she's been denied funding opportunities. Robert Inns, a professor from the University of Saskatchewan, spoke to the National Post in 2015 about the difficulty of raising the issue of violence against Indigenous men. He was quoted as saying, It is a difficult issue to raise because you don't want to say one is more important than the other, and it can come across like that. When you raise it, you want to make it clear it's an issue facing men and women. In an Aboriginal Policy Studies Journal article cited, by the Post, he wrote about the fact that Indigenous men also commit and are charged with murder at disproportionate rates, saying, placing the emphasis on the violence of which Indigenous men are capable, while at the same time ignoring the victimization, is caused by a specific kind of race and gender bias many white people have towards Indigenous men. 
A video of his recent talk in Toronto, The Moose in the Room, Time to Talk About Indigenous Male Violence, is available on Facebook. A coalition expand the inquiry, spearheaded by Muscoan Chief Ernie Cray, supported the inclusion of men and boys as part of the national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. However, the coalition received more opposition than support, mainly due to the participation of non-Indigenous men rights activists from CAF, Canadian Association for Equality. Canadians Missing, Murdered, and Exploited Men and Boys Neil Stonechild Neil Stonechild was an intelligent and passionate young man. He was determined to make a better life for himself. And at 17, he was on his way to doing just that. Stonechild was born in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. On August 24, 1973, he was a student of Walter Murray Collegiate Institute and was an accomplished wrestler, having won a bottomweight provincial title in Saskatchewan. Neil was of Cree Nation. The Cree Nation is a group of First Nations peoples who live in what is now Canada. They are the largest Indigenous group in Canada with over 350,000 members. The Cree traditionally lived in the subarctic and plains regions of Canada and their language is one of the most widely spoken in the country. The Cree have rich culture and history, and they have played an important role in the development of Canada. They are known for their skills as hunters, trappers, and traders, and they have a deep connection to the land. The Cree also has a strong oral tradition, and their stories and songs have been passed down for generations. The life and dreams of Neil Stonechild opened a window into a vibrant person who was battling his personal demons in order to live a full and normal life. He was a popular, charismatic, and good-looking teenager, and his friend Jason Roy was with him at the night he vanished. Roy remembers Stonechild as someone who loved life and was a giving person who enjoyed being a young kid. Though Stonechild and Roy both had a history of criminal behavior. People around Stonechild saw more than just a life of crime and alcoholism. On November 25, 1990, Neil Stonechild was seen walking home from a party with a friend. He was stopped by two Saskatoon police officers who claimed he was intoxicated and disorderly. The officers took Neil into custody and drove him to the outskirts of the city. They then released him without any shoes or a jacket in a field where the temperature was below negative 18 Fahrenheit. Neil's body was found the following morning. He had died of hypothermia. The Saskatoon Police Service initially ruled Neil's death as an accident. However, an independent inquiry later concluded that Stonechild had been the victim of a starlight tour. The inquiry also found that Saskatoon Police Service had a systematic problem with racism and discrimination against Indigenous people. For decades, Indigenous people in Saskatchewan's golden, wheat-covered prairies have been victims of a dangerous phenomenon known as starlight tours. The term starlight tours refers to a practice of Canada's Saskatoon Police 
that it resulted in at least five First Nations men freezing to death, including Neil Stonechild. This practice, which was rarely documented, involved police officers driving intoxicated indigenous people out of town and leaving them to walk home and sober up. The lack of police reports from either side made this practice mostly the stuff of urban legend. The first documented case of Starlight Tour occurred in 1976 and was described in the 2005 book, Starlight Tour, The Last Lonely Night of Neil Stonechild. According to the book, two Aboriginal men and a woman who was eight months pregnant were picked up by a Saskatoon police officer and dropped off outside of the city. The woman, who was the first to report the Starlight Tour, later described the experience of the police chief. She said that after the officer pulled them each out of the car and drove away, they realized how far they were from town. In October of 1976, the Saskatoon police posted a memo for all his staff to see. The memo stated that the officer had been accused of forcing the three people into a police vehicle and driving them to a remote area outside of the city, after which he left them to walk back to the city. The officer denied the accusations but was found guilty and was reprimanded and fined $200. The Starlight Tour practice underscores a long history of racism against Canada's indigenous people. It is a reminder that in order to protect the safety of all people, it is important to acknowledge and address the systemic racism in our society and work together to ensure that it is eradicated. The death of Neil Stonechild is a reminder of the ongoing problem of racism and discrimination against Indigenous people in Canada. It is also a reminder of the importance of holding police accountable for their actions. The deaths of Neil and other Indigenous people at the hands of Saskatoon police led to a number of protests and demonstrations. In 1999, the Saskatchewan government passed the Star Blanket Declaration which called for an end to the practice of starlight tours. It is difficult to say for certain whether or not starlight tours still happen. There have been no confirmed cases of starlight tours since the early 2000s, but there have been a number of reports of indigenous people being dropped off outside of city limits in cold weather. In some cases, these people have been found alive, but in others, they've been found dead. It is possible that starlight tours are still happening, but that they are being done more discreetly. It is also possible that the reports of indigenous people being dropped off outside of city limits are not actually starlight tours, but are simply cases of police officers dropping off intoxicated people in a so-called safe place. The other way to know for sure whether or not starlight tours are still happening is to have a more thorough investigation into the matter. This would involve interviewing indigenous people who have been dropped off outside the city limits, as well as investigating the conduct of police officers. On the night of Neil Stonechild's death, his friend Jason Roy was with him. Five days later, when Roy was interviewed by the police, he provided a signed statement that he and Stonechild had consumed more than 1.4 liter bottle of vodka together and that they had parted ways at around 11.30 p.m. Roy claimed to have blacked out, 
and had no recollection of what happened afterwards. However, in 2000, Roy told a different story, that the last time he had seen Stonechild, the latter was in the back of the police cruiser, bleeding from a cut on his face and pleading for help. Because of the information he provided, Roy's family were placed in an RCMP witness protection program. Furthermore, when Roy was questioned, he gave the officer a false name, Tracy Lee Horse. Shortly after that, the officers talked to Neil Stonechild's cousin, Bruce Janelle, and questioned him. Janelle stated that there was nobody in the back of the cruiser. As a result, Sanger and Hartwick ran quarries on the Canadian Police Information Center, abbreviation CPIC, computer system for the name Tracy Horace and Tracy Lee Horace and Neil Stonechild. The latter quarry was followed by a CPAC quarry by Bruce Janelle. Stonechild's body was discovered with one shoe missing. The police initially concluded that there had been no foul play, but a decade later, Roy's statement caused the Royal Canadian Mount Police to investigate Stonechild's death and the death of other First Nation individuals thought to have been in police custody. Neil was living between the foster care system and his mother's house. He was close to his older brother, Dean Lindgren, who had been taken away from their family as part of the 60s scoop and later adopted by a white family in Minnesota. The week before Neil's death, the two brothers had planned to travel to Ontario and drive back a car Dean had bought. However, Dean had to go alone, and on his way back to Saskatoon, he got into an accident and destroyed his car. When he borrowed a stranger's phone to call home, he was told that his brother had been killed. The 60s scoop was a period in Canadian history from the late 1950s to the early 1980s, during which an estimated 20,000 Indigenous children were removed from their families and communities and placed in foster homes or adopted by non-Indigenous families. The practice was driven by their belief that Indigenous children would have better opportunities in life if they were raised in a white, middle-class home. The 60s scoop was a direct result of the residential school system, which had been in place in Canada since the late 1800s. Residential schools were boarding schools for Indigenous children, where they were forced to assimilate into Canadian culture and abandon their own languages, traditions, and beliefs. The schools were often abusive and neglective, and many children suffered physical and emotional trauma as a result. The 60s scoop was also a product of the prevailing attitudes of the time, which held that indigenous people were inferior to white people and that their children would be better off being raised by white families. These attitudes were based on racism and colonialism, and they had a devastating impact on indigenous families and communities. In recent years, there has been a growing awareness of the 60s scoop and its impact on indigenous people, in 2017, the Canadian government apologized for the scoop, and it has since provided financial compensation to survivors. The government has also committed to providing more support for Indigenous children and families, and is working to address the underlying causes of the scoop, such as racism and colonialism. 
In 2003, the Saskatchewan provincial government held a commission of inquiry, the Wright Inquiry, into the death of Neil Stonechild. The report found that officers had not recorded their interactions with Stonechild in their logbooks shortly before his death on the outskirts of the city. It also concluded that marks on Stonechild's wrists and nose could have been caused by handcuffs. The inquiry noted that relations between the police and the First Nations were problematic, but that the investigation into, into Neil's death at the time had been inadequate to determine the circumstances of his death, and the inquiry concluded on May 19, 2004. And as a result of its findings, police officers Larry Hartwick and Brad Sanger were fired. This decision was later appealed, but the firings were ultimately upheld. Today, Dean still remembers his brother with love and holds hatred for the two officers he believes took his life. Meanwhile, Jason Roy, the last person to see Neil alive, is struggling to overcome the trauma of that night. He calls for cultural and sensitivity training of the police to better equip them to deal with high-stress situations involving Indigenous people. He wants justice and will not let the police win. Barry Blaine Seymour Police in Prince George, British Columbia are continuing to investigate the disappearance of Barry Blaine Seymour, a 32-year-old man from Fort Ware, who was last seen in Prince George 11 years ago. Barry is of Quaracha Nation, also known as Fort Ware, the First Nations community in northern British Columbia, Canada. It is located approximately 570 kilometers north of Prince George in the Rocky Mountain Trench at the confluence of the Fox, Quaracha, and Finlay rivers. The population is about 270 people. The Quaracha First Nation is a member of the Kaska Dene Council, which is a tribal council of five Kaska First Nations in British Columbia and Yukon. The Quaracha First Nations traditional territory includes the Fenlay River Basin and the Rock Mountain Trench. Barry was visiting Prince George with family members to celebrate his son's birthday. He was last seen on the evening of May 23, 2012, near the Sunrise Trailer Park, Lansdowne Road, where he had been staying in a local motel. In an effort to locate Seymour, the police conducted an aerial search of the Fraser River between Prince George and Quesnel, conducted a shoreline search via boat, carried out a police dog search of the area surrounding Lansdowne and conducted an extensive ground search with the help of the Prince George Search and Rescue Society. Despite following up many leads and interviewing people, there is no evidence to suggest that Seymour was a victim of foul play. Seymour is described as an indigenous man standing at 170 centimeters tall and weighing approximately 79 kilograms, with black hair and brown eyes. Despite extensive searches conducted by police and community members, unfortunately, no new information regarding his disappearance has yet been uncovered. The Prince George RCMP are asking for the public's help in locating Seymour. Anyone who may have seen him or knows of his whereabouts is urged to contact the Prince George RCMP 
at 250-561-3300 or anonymously contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or go online to www.pgcrimestoppers.bc.ca. Ronnie Levi, a 40-year-old from Metapenakia Mi'kmaq Nation, also known as Red Bank, Mi'kmaq First Nation Band Government in New Brunswick, Canada, on the other side of the Miramichi River from Sunny Corner. It is located at the head of tide of the Miramichi River. For thousands of years, Mi'kmaq communities along New Brunswick's northeastern shore lived near tidal estuaries, where tidal saltwater flows inland and creates an ecosystem for anadromous fish species such as salmon, sturgeon, gasparo, or alewife, striped bass, and eel that seasonally moved up the estuaries in large numbers. Some of these species spawned above the head of tide and up the freshwater streams. Although officially recognized in 1783, Metapanagia has been home to the Mi'kmaq community for over 3,000 years, making it the oldest continuously settled community in New Brunswick. The community has a population of approximately 550 people. On June 12, 2020, in the late afternoon, the sunny corner of RCMP detachment received a call regarding a man allegedly acting strangely near the Metapanagia First Nation, according to the Bureau d'Enquête Indépendant du Québec. When police arrived at the scene, Rodney was equipped with knives and rushed at one of the two officers. A taser was utilized three times. However, it was unsuccessful at subduing him. One of the officers then shot Rodney twice in the chest. Even though he was rushed to the hospital, the shooting resulted in his death. Witnesses were interviewed by the Bureau, of whom mentioned that Rodney had been severely depressed in the days before his death and spoke of suicide by RCMP. Norman Ward, Rodney's brother-in-law, mentioned in an article that he had suffered from a drug addiction and did not think he was a risk to anyone. Norman described Rodney as having a unique way with people particularly children, and added that his passing has created a void among those who knew him. According to Lisa Levi, Rodney's sister, he had been invited by Pastor Brody McLeod of the Boom Road Pentecostal Church to have dinner with the family. The pastor later released a statement to dismiss the rumors that Rodney had been an unwanted guest. Lisa also said that Ronnie had been trying to get psychiatric help for several months prior, but was denied admission at the local hospital. The police talked with Ronnie for 20 minutes before shooting him, according to Lisa. She later questioned the officers whether Ronnie had been scared and if he had suffered. This incident has left Lisa and her three children aged 7, 13, and 14 at the time, feeling anxious and scared when driving outside of their community. Norman believes Rodney would be alive today if he was white, expressing his belief that the justice system is against indigenous people. 
where coroner's jury examining the 2020 fatal police shooting of Rodney Levi has ruled his death a homicide. The 48-year-old Indigenous man was shot dead by RCMP in Sunny Corner on June 12, 2020, after officers responded to a complaint about a man with knives at a home. The five-member jury issued a long list of recommendations today, including to reinstate the Indigenous Band Constable Program and to locate detox centres in First Nations communities. Jurors are also recommending that RCMP officers not be first responders during wellness checks, but should be on standby. The jury is also calling for greater suicide intervention training for the RCMP and for the acceleration of programs across the country to equip officers with body cameras. The jury heard from 27 people over five days of testimony. Denny Ray Poole. The Poole family was filled with joy and anticipation on April 5, 2001. Brought the newest addition to the family, Denny Ray Poole, named after Ray Napoleon, whose significant role in Denny's life would bring them close together. Denny, Seke Dene First Nation, is Sikani First Nation's band government in the northern interior of British Columbia, Canada. Their main community is located in Fort Ware, approximately 375 kilometers or 233 miles north of Prince George. The name Seke Dene means people of the mountain in the Sikani language. This First Nation has a registered population of 516 people. The band's chief is Johnny Pierre. With the help of their grandmother, Jenny, Denny, and his sisters found love and care in her presence, whether it be through attending school, running errands, or storytelling in class. As Denny grew, so did his love for family and friends, often talking for hours at bedtime, exploring many hobbies such as skateboarding, biking, swimming, and hockey, along with Alan, father figure in his life, Denny had a strong support system that he cherished deeply. Camp Sagatawa, a Christian camp located near Moberly Lake, British Columbia, was a favorite of Denny Ray Poole's. He enjoyed riding the horses, and it was at the camp he made a decision to become baptized. Denny Ray had been struggling a bit in middle school, according to his grandmother, Jenny, but he promised her he would stay out of trouble and work harder in school to ensure he graduated. On the night of March 11, 2016, Denny Ray told his grandmother, Jenny, he was spending the night at his best friend's house. She allowed him to do this, provided his chores were done. However, the two boys had other plans. They decided to embark on a 76.4 kilometer journey to meet a girl they had been chatting with online. Unfortunately, the only witness who saw Denny Ray after this point was his friend, and the identity of the girl remains a mystery. It was a cold night, with temperatures reaching negative six. Denny Ray was wearing only a sweatshirt, jeans, Osiris skate shoes, and a black DC hat. The two teens wandered the hallway and back roads for 20 hours but they kept getting turned around and didn't make much headway. The following morning, Denny Ray called his grandmother to tell her he was walking down the hill and would be home soon. 
His grandmother asked him to call before coming home, but unfortunately, this was the last time she ever heard from him. It's believed that Poole was last seen walking across Kiskatanaw River Bridge on the Alaska Highway at approximately 7.10 p.m. on March 12, 2016. These boys were seen running along the highway and a phone call was made to RCMP. When the officers arrived, the youth were gone and there was no tracks or clues to be found. As the weeks passed, police searched the area for signs of Denny, but found nothing. Family and community members organized search parties but were also unsuccessful in locating the young boy. It is unclear what happened to Denny, but some theories suggest that the cold temperatures, lack of winter gear, and a storm may have caused him to wander off in search of shelter. Another possibility is that Denny may have been taken by someone. The disappearance has left the community shaken and many unanswered questions. As the search for Denny continues, we can only hope he will come home one day. Alicia Poole, Denny's older sister, and Charlotte Brune, a social worker with the Aboriginal Family Services, have been working to find Denny since his disappearance. Although they have done everything they can to investigate every lead and search for any signs of Denny, they have come up empty-handed. The belief Denny was picked up by someone while walking along the dark remote highway and never seen again. For the Poole family, this is yet another tragedy to add to a long list of losses. The Poole family has had its shares of tragedies, including two daughters lost in Vancouver and two sons who drowned in McLeod Lake, including still unsolved case of their daughter, Wendy Frida Poole. On January 26, 1989, Wendy Poole, who was 20 years and pregnant with her second child, was tragically strangled to death on the second floor of a housing co-op in Vancouver. In 1991, a man was acquitted of second-degree murder charges in the case. This man has since passed away. The Vancouver police have stopped actively pursuing Wendy's case, and it has been a considerable amount of time since her family has had contact with officers. I will have her case in the show notes. Denny's disappearance is reminiscent of the Highway of Tears where many women have gone missing. Charlotte and Alicia don't believe this is a case of a community responding indifferently to a missing First Nations boy, as there were more non-Aboriginal people who came out to help search. They believe someone somewhere has information that could help find Denny. Highway of Tears The Highway of Tears is a 725-kilometer which is 450 miles corridor of Highway 16 between Prince George and Prince Rupert in British Columbia, Canada, which has been the location of crimes against many missing and murdered Indigenous women, MMIW, beginning in 1970. The phrase was coined during a vigil during, held in Terrace, British Columbia in 1998 by Florence Naziel who was thinking of the victims' families crying over their lost loved ones. 
The victims were mostly indigenous women, hence the term missing and murdered indigenous women. Accounts vary as the exact number of victims according to the RCMP project E-PANA. The number of victims is fewer than 18, while Aboriginal organizations estimate that the number of missing and murdered women is higher than 40. I will provide a show note link of the table list of all the known women who went missing, were murdered, or died of unknown causes in the Highway of Tears. E-PANA cases are categorized on this table. The Highway of Tears have become a symbol of the larger issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. The issue has been the subject of most public outcry and debate and has led to calls of increased government action to address the issue. In 2015, the federal government launched a national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The inquiry, which was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, released its final report in 2019. The report made a number of recommendations, including calls for increased funding for Indigenous policing, better coordination between different levels of government, and more support for families of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The Highway of Tears remains a tragedy and a source of pain for many Indigenous people in Canada. The issue has not been solved, and the families of the victims are still waiting for answers. However, the public outcry and the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission have brought the issue to the forefront of public consciousness and have led to calls for action from the government. The Dawson Creek RCMP have been actively searching for pools since his disappearance, utilizing police dog services, air support services, search and rescue, and local community assistance. He is described as 15 years old at the time of disappearance, between 5 feet 6 inches to 6 feet tall, 130 pounds, with short but long black hair in the front. He was last seen wearing a size 10 men's Osiris high top shoes, purple, green, blue, and black, blue jeans, a gray DC hood, and a black flat-rimmed hat. Anyone with information on his whereabouts is asked to contact the Dawson Creek RCMP at 250-784-3700 or remain anonymous and contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Colton Theron Fleury was a 16-year-old when he was last seen by his mother at a motel in downtown Prince George, British Columbia around 7 a.m. on May 3, 2018. At the time of his disappearance, Colton was in the care of the Ministry of Children and Family Development and living in a Prince George group home. He lived in and out of care with the Ministry of Children and Family Development for years before eventually discovering crystal meth. After a problem involving fighting at one of his group homes, he was placed back into his mother's care. On May 2, 2018, Colton stayed with his mother in a motel where she worked. So, you know, usually Colton would uh, sit outside, visit with his friends, and be out till about 1 o'clock at night. That night, 
Colton went to sleep at 10 o'clock at night. And I thought, oh, he must be tired. He must be overwhelmed or something. So I went to bed because he was sleeping. And uh, it was just a small room with the two beds. And one side had the the, the outside door. And on this side had the bathroom. So... I heard him stir a little bit and I thought, oh, okay, he's going to the bathroom. And then I got up about 9.30 and I looked over and he wasn't there. And I thought, okay, I must be going to go see his, his friends. Later on, I find out he had left 7 in the morning. Never to be seen again. Phyllis has made seven trips to Vancouver's downtown east side to search for her son, showing pictures of Colton and asking if anyone has seen him. She has also chased down reported sightings, but the RCMP believed there were of people who resembled Colton. Colton's aunt, Mona Wilson was one of Robert Picton's last victim, an additional tragedy to the family, is once again searching in the Vancouver downtown east side. Mona Wilson's brother, Jason Fleury, has set out from Rocky Mountain House, Alberta, in search of his 16-year-old nephew, Colton Fleury, who was reported missing on May 4th. Jason reported that Colton left home on May 3rd and has since been sighted in Prince George, New Hazleton, Prince Rupert, and Vancouver's downtown east side, and recently Surrey, British Columbia. His whereabouts still remain a mystery. The RCMP have asserted that there is no evidence of foul play in Colton's disappearance. But Jason has speculated that his nephew may have gone to the DTES, which is, which is the abbreviation of Vancouver's downtown east side, in search of cannabis. Being a user of methamphetamine, Jason has described Colton as being a follower, not a leader, and has urged him to call his mother, Phyllis. He has also reported that Colton has been seen in the area around the Aboriginal Front Door Center on Main Street and the Vancouver area network of drug users. Jason has expressed his sadness at the thought of his nephew being just another statistic in the area's crisis of drug abuse. Since his disappearance, Phyllis has received several tips that Colton has been spotted in Vancouver's Oppenheimer Park with a blonde woman. Despite the rumors that Colton is dead, Phyllis remains hopeful that he is still alive. She has also even offered to send him money for food if he is hiding due to drug debts or for any other reason. Prince George RCMP Corporal Craig Douglas has stated that there are very few clues that point in any one direction and that if Colton decided to leave town on his own or if harm has come to him, 
someone must know something. The RCMP have put significant resources into their search for Colton. Phyllis has put up posters and has a Facebook page called Help Find Colton Theron Flurry to review tips. While she's heard from people who say Colton is doing well, she also has heard he's on heroin and is worried he's in trouble. She's even been the victim of a prank call where someone claimed they had Colton and he was found hanging from a tree in a schoolyard. Phyllis was devastated by that call and quickly contacted the Prince George RCMP to report what she had heard. It soon became clear that the call was a hoax and had not come from the Vancouver police as the caller had claimed. Phyllis said that the experience left her ready to puke with the meanness of this prank. The Prince George RCMP have passed Colton's file to the Serious Crimes Unit, but Phyllis feels they are not doing enough to help her find her son. She continues to chase every lead and every rumor on her own and has asked anyone with information on Colton's whereabouts to call Prince George RCMP or Crime Stoppers. For updates from Phyllis herself or to share your support, you can follow her page on Facebook. Despite five years of searching, Phyllis has not given up hope on finding Colton. Colton is described as First Nations, five feet, eight inches tall, with brown hair and brown eyes, and about 120 pounds. Last seen wearing a red hoodie and jeans. Anyone with information on Colton's whereabouts is asked to call the Prince George RCMP at 250-561-3300 or Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS-8477. Referencing case number 2018-13528. A group of dedicated advocates in Edmonton are hoping to bring much-needed attention to the support of missing, murdered, and exploited Indigenous men and boys. They recently launched Blue Jean Jacket Day on June 6 as a counterpart to Red Dress Day, which focuses on the raising awareness about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The goal for Blue Jean Jacket Day is to create a nationwide movement that will receive equal attention and funding as the Red Dress Day. This is an important shift in focus as federal government has finally recognized the need to dedicate $95.8 million in support of families of missing and murdered Indigenous people, including men and boys. Stephanie Harp is a passionate international advocate for missing and murdered and exploited Indigenous people, abbreviation MMEIP. She comes from an Indigenous political family in Northern Alberta, from Fort McKay First Nation, and speaks out for those without a voice due to fear of retaliation. Harp is an acclaimed singer, songwriter, and is using her voice to increase awareness of the need for action, support for grassroots people, and the support of programming for families of MMEIP. She calls on the Canadian criminal justice system for stronger sentences for those who commit acts of violence towards Indigenous peoples and highlight the needs for increased awareness of the dangers of online activities. Harp is also working with Carrie Thomason to facilitate in-person and virtual workshops across Canada 
and recently launched the Family Safety and Online Gaming Workshop to provide vital information to Indigenous families. Finally, she is asking listeners to visit www.aboriginalalert.ca, which is continually sharing information about missing individuals in Canada. Stephanie, one of the organizers behind the Blue Jean Jacket Day, knows how vital this inclusion is from a personal experience. Men have been consistently left out of discussion around violence against Indigenous communities for too long. When it comes to finding support for programming, they're often overlooked or unfunded. This event aims to acknowledge these men's challenges while offering hope for progress in seeking justice. I applaud those who create spaces where this issue can be openly discussed and where men can feel safe in expressing their grief and sadness. It's important for everyone, regardless of gender, to seek out help if they're struggling with these issues because it takes great courage to do so. At times like these, moments marked by tragedy and violence, it's crucial for men to come forward and communicate their needs and feelings so that healing can begin. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and be sure to come back for our discussion of true crime stories. Starting in June, I will be switching over the podcast to be a bi-weekly pod platform. Until then, this is Jasmine Castillo. We are voiceless no more. This podcast was created, produced, recorded, researched, and edited by Jasmine Castillo, current active member of Darkcast Network, Transto Task Force, Uncovered.com, and partners with Search and Support San Antonio.